Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. You should be there already because we were just in chapter 5, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What we see here is that the gospel is not something that we should be ashamed of. In fact, it's something that we should glory in, we should be proud of, we should love this gospel. And the fuel behind the Apostle Paul's ministry, who wrote this letter, is that he gloried in the gospel. He loved it. And what's probably most likely hindering your evangelism is the fact that you don't glory in the gospel. And so today this sermon is going to be, one, us exposing what it was that Paul actually gloried in in hopes that that fuels your evangelism. The title of today's sermon is The Glory of the Gospel. My name's Josh Miller. I'm a pastor, elder here. I have the privilege of working at Southeastern's campus uh, for an organization called Campus Outreach, uh, where, yeah, woohoo, where I have the privilege of sharing the gospel a lot. Uh, that's our ministry. We're not a Christian ministry that sometimes engages in evangelism. That is the, the tip of our spear. That is the, the weapon of choice for us when we are on campus is to evangelize. And so Pastor Sam asked me to give two sermons uh, this week and next week on the topic of evangelism. Um, so this, this is what this is. It's not an evangelistic sermon, although I have been praying this week. It's just been on my heart that if you are in this room unconverted, I pray that you would see why this gospel is such a big deal. And I pray that you would come to believe it this week, even this day. And so this sermon and, and this this topic of evangelism is needed. Um, this specific instance of, of Paul writing the letter to the Romans and, and really just, he's previewing this epistle in these two verses. This is needed because we have such a tendency to be ashamed of this message. It has been given to us, the church, the mission to reach the nations, to evangelize. It is the church's job to evangelize. We are building the church through the church. We're building an airplane in, in the air as it's flying. And God has given us the privilege and the responsibility to do this as the church. And so we all have a part to play in this. So to define evangelism, just a simple definition is proclaiming the message of the gospel. That's what evangelism is. Evangelism is not apologetics or defending the faith. Those things are good, but many are hindered because they think that they have to know the answer to every question that an unbeliever has. You don't have to. You just need to know the word, proclaim the word. Evangelism is not converting souls. We're not um, responsible for the results of evangelism. That's completely up to God. Evangelism is not you imposing your view on others like politics or you know, religion because the gospel is true. You're just explaining what is true about the world. You're just presenting facts. Evangelism is not 
strictly inviting people to church. You're just making it easier for us, the preacher, to evangelize. Eventually, if you were to evangelize your lost friends, you would, you would speak to them the gospel. Evangelism is not sharing your testimony, although that, that can be good and done in the right way. You may have a gospel presentation in there, but telling someone what Christ has done for you is not evangelism. That's just sharing your testimony. It's not being an activist or relieving the social injustices in the world. All these things are good, but the beautiful thing is that God has not burdened you with any of those things. You don't have to spend so many hours a week in community service, for example. But we all are given the responsibility and the privilege to open our mouth and proclaim the gospel. This is how God has chosen to bring his sheep into his fold is through his believers, his sons and daughters proclaiming his message. So the question you need to ask yourself is what is your role in that? Who is it that you're to be evangelizing? I obviously can't answer that for you today, but I'll tell you this much. It cannot be any less then explaining to people that they need to be saved and being ready to explain to them how they can be saved. That is the bare minimum of your role in evangelism. So your, your question may be, well, okay, Josh, how do we do that? And I'm not gonna answer that question this week. That's gonna be more next week. The question I wanna answer today is why don't we do it? Why don't we naturally evangelize? Because as we read through the gospels and through the epistles, we see it as a very natural thing to share the good news of Christ. And if you just think about it logically, it makes sense. You've been saved from death. Why wouldn't you proclaim this message to everybody? So why don't we do it? I think the answer lies in the example of the apostle Paul in these two verses. He begins by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And what this is here, and I, I never noticed this before, but he's not saying that he used to be embarrassed of the gospel and now he's not. He's using a double negative, which is a figure of speech, not ashamed, and he's emphasizing the positive. So it wasn't enough for Paul to say, I love the gospel. I, am, I glory in the gospel. He said it in the negative, in the double negative, so that he would emphasize his point. This is like us saying, you won't be sorry. Or you can't say I didn't warn you. The opposite is actually em emphasized. So although Paul has probably never been embarrassed of the gospel, others have, and we, we see examples in scripture. Peter was embarrassed when he denied Christ in Matthew chapter 26. He writes to Timothy in, in this first letter to Timothy that obviously Timothy was struggling with this. Most of us, if we're honest, have struggled with being ashamed of this message and our, our role to evangelize. But there's a very stern and unsettling warning in Mark's gospel, chapter eight, verse 38. It says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And so this is really important. I think because of our our um, tendency to be ashamed of this message, we have to understand where was Paul coming from? How can we overcome uh, this tendency? He wrote to Timothy in his second letter, chapter one, verse eight, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
And so it's for the gospel that Paul was suffering. He was in chains and Timothy was embarrassed of maybe not as much the gospel message in this case, but the results of the gospel that it would enchain Paul. And maybe he's afraid of, of, of his future if that has chains for him. But Paul's not ashamed of it. He's not ashamed of the message. He's not ashamed of the consequences because he knows that it's true and that it's good and that it's the only thing that he can offer people. It's the very best thing. So the remedy then to our shame or tendency to be ashamed, which is really just due to ignorance, and I hope to show you that today, is certainty. We need to be certain of this message, certain that it's true, and certain of its results in our life. Just think about Peter for a, for a second. When he was, he was following Jesus intimately, closely for three years, and, and hours after Jesus left him, he denies him to a young servant girl. It didn't take much. And Peter, we know, like we see his personality. He's a bold guy. So what happened in that moment is he became unsure. Jesus went away. He was unsure of how the next three or so days were going to play out for him. And then what happens is when Jesus resurrects and spends time with his disciples and he's sitting there with Peter on the beach and he restores him by saying, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And then we see in Acts chapter two, just probably a couple weeks later, Peter preaches the most incredible sermon ever with, I mean, if you were to just diagram this sermon, all you would see is certainty and assuredness. What happened from when Peter denied Christ in front of a little servant girl to when he was in the middle of Jerusalem proclaiming these truths with no shame? It was certainty. Jesus came back and made him certain of the scriptures and what they meant and, and that they were true and that Jesus was not yet going to restore Israel. And so it's from that certainty that his boldness came back. And so lack of understanding, this ignorance can make the most bold and courageous men and women fall silent. And so that's what we're after. We want zeal. We want boldness, passion, but it can't come without knowledge. And so the knowledge of the gospel should change you. It should embolden you. So step one, we want to become certain of the message. And today's going to be a review of the gospel, which we should never grow tired of reviewing the wonderful gospel. But then step two will be a litmus test of your understanding of that gospel. Does it propel you or compel you? Is there now glory in this message and pride and enthusiasm that, that compels you to share? Robert Murray McShane says, no other pulse beat in ministry can sustain him. No other passion will suffice. Only the love of Christ worked in the soul by God's spirit can animate a ministry that speaks life into dead bones. And so this is what Paul emulated. This is what he had in mind when he penned this line. He was on fire for the Lord because of this understanding resulting in glory. Just look back at verse 14. He says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So this under obligation, he feels, is like a sense of debt. Now, when, you, when I say debt, you probably think of bills coming in the mail and maybe you've missed payments before and they're just piling up and you feel this external debt just weighing on your shoulders. That's not what Paul felt. Paul's de debt came from inside. And it wanted to come out. It was, it was a compulsion to share this message, to go and preach this gospel. 
And we are indebted that that feeling comes because of all that Christ has done for us in the gospel. And we know that this debt, this obligation was positive because in verse 15, he says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. It's his great joy to deliver this message. And that's his whole life was, was revolved around this one mission. And so he writes the book of Romans and and the reason he wrote it is because he couldn't quite ever get to Rome to encourage them and to be mutually benefited by them. And in God's providence, we're thankful for that because now we have this letter. Most of the churches probably got all this in person from his teachings, and, and he had to write it down to Rome. But that's the subject of this letter is God's gospel. He wants to make it so clear He understood that Rome was the epitome of influence and culture and wealth. And so he was very articulate. He was very thorough in his argumentation of the gospel. And that's really, I mean, you just see it over and over. People try to say that this book is about other things. It's a social justice treaty. It's a a commentary on, um, it's a commentary on public life or, um, it's a support letter that he, you know, he wanted to raise money to get to Spain. Yeah, I mean, it, it resulted in those things, but ultimately he just wanted to get this message uh, to that church. And that's the kind of guy that Paul was. He was single-minded. He was staunch. He wasn't really strategic. If you look at his message, if you read through Acts, I mean, he would just go and preach. And sure, he had a little strategy, he'd preach to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, but then he'd get stoned and he'd go back in there and he'd preach again. He was just steady and there was nothing stopping Paul. You read Acts 14 when he was, he went into Lystra and he got stoned and went back the very next morning, like literally pushed off a cliff, rocks dropped on him and he walks right back in the next day preaching the same message. And there was nothing stopping Paul. All of this resulted from his great understanding of this message. And so that's what we want to look at. What was it about this message that lit an evangelistic fire in him? And I have four things. It's going to be the ability of the gospel, the accomplishment of the gospel, the availability of the gospel, and then the accessibility of the gospel. And so if you look down at verse 16, the four words I'm really going to highlight today are power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for the second word, salvation to everyone who believes. And we're going to look at those closely, but we are going to get through uh, verse, uh, verse 17, Lord willing. So number one, the ability of the gospel, the power of God. So what is this power? Well, first thing we, we know about the power of God in the gospel is that this is not the power of man. Man does not save man. God does. John 6, says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent him draws him. Can, you, you guys know the difference between can and may. If you've ever asked a teacher, if you can, you know, sharpen your pencil. She's like, yeah, I'm sure you can. May I, you got to correct yourself. So this, this verse in John 6, is ability. No one has the ability to come to the father or to Christ unless the Father draws him. Think of a a dead man in the bottom of a well being drawn up by the love and call of the Father. If you being saved is God's plan, then his will will be enacted. His election will be made sure in you. 
It's not our strength to believe in or to save ourselves. We have no power. This is the power of God in our salvation. The Greek word for power is dunamos, which means force. We, we get the word dynamite from it. And so you can just, the illustration that jumps off the page is, is this great wall between you and God and it goes on forever either direction and it goes up as high as you can imagine and it even digs itself into the ground and it's infinitely thick and there's nothing that can get you through this wall back to God, the, the reconciliation, except for the power of God, the dynamite that will blow a hole through the wall and gain you access back to God. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied for the Lord in Jeremiah 23, verses 23 through 29, and he begins by just putting his power on display. He says, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? Let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What is straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, is, is, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? It's the word of God that Paul loved. He loved this power. It was the weapon that he wielded to destroy strongholds and arguments and lofty opinions raised against Christ. In the military, think small unit, special forces, you got SEALs and MARSOC and 18 Delta Rangers. You're, you're, when you're in a unit like that, you're given different specialties. Uh, you could be a sniper and you could be given the power of a long range weapon. Uh, you could uh, be a breacher where you're given tools to open doorways, um, tools like sledgehammers, uh, hoolies, which are big crowbars. I know firemen call them howlies, but we call them hoolies. Uh, you, you're, you're given chainsaws and even explosive devices to blow up. I'm getting a little excited thing, even thinking about it. <laughs> but uh, that's not the point. Because by far the most powerful person on the battlefield is the one with a radio. The JTAC, or Joint Terminal Air Controller, is a certified member of uh, a SEAL team or MARSOC team that's able to to direct the action of military aircraft engaged in close air support. So in other words, think about controlling and telling an F-16 where to shoot, or my personal favorite, an A-10 Warthog, where to lay down their firepower on the battlefield. You control it as the JTAC. So I think this is how Paul understood his role. He wasn't a sniper that could convert anyone he targeted. He wasn't a breacher that could wow the crowds with his power and speech and charisma. He had one tool. It was his commitment to the word of God and the word of God, which was the very power for salvation. That's what he trusted in. And we, we measure power and force by its ability to change. And Paul is someone who had seen an incredible change in his life. 
I mean, just think about his conversion in Acts 9 the, on the road to Damascus and he's blinded by a light and he's blinded for days and he's given his sight back. But then he's, he's led on a journey with the Lord to, to be the, the primary mover and shaker in the missionary movement over the next 20 years. And this is where we have him writing this letter 20 years into his conversion. Just think about all the change he has seen, the gospel change in his heart and in the heart of so many people along the coast of the Mediterranean. He's planted these churches and seen such, such Im Im impressive change from people loving idols to loving God. First Thessalonians 1 and 2, which obviously we just went through this book, and you see in the first two chapters his I mean, he, he just has these Christians on display. They're his glory and his joy because of their change. And he just loves it. So he, he glories in this power of the gospel, and you should too. You can unleash the power of the word in your evangelism. Stop being afraid. When you wield this book, this is the power of God for change, for gospel change. Trust in it and it alone. Hosea 6, 5 says, I've hewed them. Hewed means when you have a rock that's just a big, ugly shape, you hew it and make it useful for something. You do that with wood too. God says, I have hewed them by the prophets. Benjamin Keach, a Puritan, comments on this. He says, rocks and stones are naturally rough and unfit for use until they are hewed and squared. So the hearts of wicked men are naturally rough and unfit for any spiritual use until they are hewed by the axe and hammer of the word. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, to those, or the, the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved and to you all who are being saved, this is the very power of God. It's the word of the cross. It's not your logic. It's not your winsomeness. It's not your ability to reason or your great speech or humor. If you have those things naturally, great, use them. But don't think you're not an evangelist because you don't have those things. Proclaim the word of God. The second thing that we see in Paul's love for the gospel is the accomplishment of the gospel. What has it done for mankind? And it is salvation. What is salvation and why does Paul glory in it? A Easy definition for salvation is that it is freedom or liberation from all of the consequences of the fall and of sin. In an obvious illustration, we even heard it and sang it today in that wonderful hymn by Charles Wesley, And Can It Be? The illustration is that you were in a jail cell. You're awaiting punishment. You've already been sentenced and you're just awaiting the execution, which is certain death. And you're chained to the wall and to the floor by unbreakable steel. And it's the gospel, and it's the only thing that has the power to come in, break your chains, open the door, call you out, and you follow Christ. So five ways in which you were saved to help you understand this full salvation that the gospel accomplishes. Number one, you were guilty in Adam, and you were guilty because of your own sin, and God has made you innocent. Guilt is something every single one of us faces on a daily basis, unless you're in Christ. And the whole world is really just attempting to re remove and relieve this guilt from our lives. And it's only through Christ that that guilt can ultimately be dealt with. So that's the first one. You were guilty and God has made you innocent. 
Number two, you were enslaved to sin. You were chained with unbreakable steel to the wall and to the floor. But God has freed you to live to him, to be an instrument of righteousness. So you were guilty, you were enslaved. Number three, you were polluted by sin. Romans 3, just just flip over a page, uh, verse 9. Or verse 10, it says, none is righteous, no, not one. And look how Paul describes the plight of mankind, this total inability to ever please God. And he goes through the whole human picture. He says, no one understands, that's your mind. No one seeks, that's your desire. All have turned aside and they've become worthless. You're actively and passively evil. No one does good, that's your will. Your throat is an open grave. Your tongues are used to deceive. The venom of asp is under your lips. Your mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Your feet are swift to shed blood. Your paths and plans, they just lead to ruin and misery. The way of peace you have not known, you will not know. There is no fear of God before your eyes. That is the pollution of sin that has come into every single human being. And it's through the gospel that the spring of life Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, has been placed into your heart and over the rest of your life here on earth, it is cleansing and purifying every molecule of your being. Number four, you were destined to hell. God has, we read in the Psalm 40 today, the the path that you were on is to hell and God has plucked you out. It says from the miry bog, he has set your feet upon the rock, his word, and he has guided you and continues to guide you into salvation. He preserves you. You were on a train heading to hell and he's taken you and putting you on a train in the opposite direction and there's no getting off of it now. You are on your way to salvation. You have been, it has been restored to you the hope of eternal life, the hope which was taken from us in Adam. There was no hope in our destination, to to ever get to heaven before Christ. Number five, you were cut off from a relationship with God. You had no ability or even desire to know God or to seek him. This is why we're empty. This is why we're depressed. This is why we're anxious. This is why we work so hard at things that don't matter, that are just temporal, that will, will all burn up. Because we have no communion with God, we have nothing to satisfy us. But God has restored that through the gospel. In the Holy Spirit, you can now live in union, united with Christ in fellowship. He indwells you, and you can enjoy this on a daily basis at any moment of the day. Now, if fellowship with God is a chore to you, then it would make sense why you don't evangelize. If, if this great delight, this great privilege that we have to commune with the God of the universe is a chore, well, you need to seek first before you go spread any kind of message. One, make sure you are truly in Christ because that should be a delight to you. And two, work on cultivating that relationship, that communion daily through, through Bible reading and through prayer. So Paul glories in the accomplishment of salvation. He's daily walking in a full understanding of what it means to be a Christian. All that he has been delivered from and all that he has been given in the gospel. And he praises God for that. When Prudence asked Christian and Paul Bunyan's, uh, uh, did I say it right? Paul Bunyan? Yeah. John Bunyan. I always do that. Only taught the class for seven weeks read the book three times. 
when Prudence asked Christian, you know, she, he's, she's getting his testimony and, and she asked him, you know, what's, what's the, your Christian walk been like? Well, it's good sometimes, it's bad sometimes. Well, what, what helps relieve some of the bad? And, and, and he says, well, thinking of Christ and thinking of heaven. And she says, well, what makes you want to go to heaven? And he replies, why, there I hope to see him alive that did hang dead on the cross. And there I hope to be rid of all those things that to this day are in me an annoyance to me. There they say there is no death, and there I shall dwell with, what, with such company as I like best. For to tell you the truth, I love him, because I was by him eased of my burden, and I am weary of my inward sickness. I would want to be where I shall die no more, and with the company that shall continually cry, holy, holy, holy. So do you love this great salvation? Do you love all that God has delivered you from and to? Because if you don't long to go to heaven, then it's going to be really hard to convince others to come with you as you journey there. So Paul loved the accomplishment of the gospel. And number three, he loved the availability of the gospel. The gospel, he says, is to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and even to the Greek. This everyone means anyone. It means whomsoever, whosoever, all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Every man, every woman. There is no distinction to who this gospel message is for, and Paul loved that. You know, I told you earlier that the Greek word for power is dunamos, and typically we translate that dynamite. But there's another word that dunamos is used for that we see in some writings, and it's the word prescription. And so you see the, the illustration that kind of jumps off the page there. Just imagine yourself walking through this world with an, with an ailment. Maybe it's headaches, joint pain, cancer even. And you struggled with this ailment for years, and finally you found a doctor that knows what's wrong, and, and you sit in his office, and he asks you all those dumb questions that the nurse asks and the other nurse asks, and you answer them again. And then he, he gives you a sheet of paper, and he signs his name, and it has a you know, medicine that you can't read, and you bring it to the pharmacist, and they fill it, and you take it, and then voila, you feel better. The, the, the illness, the ailment is gone. And so that's the prescription that we have in the gospel. And so let's say, you know, a year goes by and you see someone in your life who's struggling with the same exact thing you were struggling with. And you have the piece of paper in your hand, the prescription that would ease his, his illness. Would you bring it to him? Obviously, yes, you would. And so this gospel, what, what gets Paul so excited about it is that everyone needs this prescription. Every single person he talks to needs it, and it will work for every single person. This is what we understand as the universality of the gospel. It is universally able to save every single person in the kingdom of God. And when you get to heaven one day, if you ask anybody, how did you get here? There's going to be you know, diversity in their their specific path, but it's all the same thing. We all got here through the blood of Christ, through salvation. Same path, but different experiences on this path. In philosophy, they, they define universality as the idea that universal facts exist and can be progressively discovered. I would add to that revealed as the gospel has been revealed to us. 
But this is in opposition to relativism, uh, which basically asserts that all facts are relative to one's perspective. And so what follows this line of thinking, a relativistic line of thinking, is the idea of, of uh, universalism. So we have the universality of the gospel, but universalism is what some people like to say is true, that, that Christ died for all without exception, meaning every single human being, no matter what they choose to believe or how they choose to act, will end up in heaven. So they see the man struggling with the same illness that they had, and they have the prescription that has to call them a sinner and tell them to repent and believe the gospel. And instead, they say, man, you'll find it on your own. Here's some positive vibes. No need for this prescription that's going to ruffle the feathers. Because they know deep down everyone's going to end up there eventually. One mountain, one destination, many paths is what they would say. You can live however you want. You can believe whatever you want, but we know you'll just, you'll end up in heaven anyway. But they, of course, they would make an exception for the really evil people. They're not even buying what they're selling. But everyone here and everyone, anytime you use the word everyone, it can be used with an exception. It's, 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 you know, plausible to do so. Sometimes it means every single person, like every knee will bow, every tongue confess. That is without exception. But here, the exception is built into the text, everyone who what? Believes. So there's a built-in exception here. You must believe. So Paul does not love this false doctrine of universalism, that Christ died for all without exception, but that Christ died for all without distinction. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, he says, or if you're a barbarian, or if you're wise or foolish, if you're rich or poor, strong or weak, college grad or GED. There's no one type of person that cannot be saved. Anyone in your life that you find yourself witnessing to, evangelizing to, needs this message. There's never someone that it's, it's I mean, it may not work on all people. Of course, we know that many won't be saved. But through this powerful message, all can be saved. So you don't have to be strategic in your workplace or with your family members. Your job is to just make salvation clear, make it glorious, beautiful, this deliverance that we've been given. God does the real work in the mind and the heart of the unbeliever. You don't have to worry if someone can afford this gospel. Before I was in ministry, I was in real estate, and we would, what I did was flip houses, and so we had a very narrow clientele that we could work with, but if we ever landed a client, we would, it would have a relatively larger profit. And that's, that's typically, you know, you see this in, um, in marketing and in, um, in economics, on the, on the flip side, like a real estate agent, they, they can work with literally anybody, but relatively they'll have a smaller profit margin than someone like who does what, what I did. The gospel literally works on everybody, can work on everybody, and the profit is, you know, eternal life. It's an amazing thing. So you, if you think of your role as a salesman, which it's really not, you're not selling anything, you can talk to anybody and anyone can afford it, and the payoff is incredible. And so that's what in, made Paul so enthusiastic about this, what compelled him to share it, because he believed this. 
Now, before I move on to the fourth point, he says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And many, the reason he includes this is to, to show that, hey, this is for every type of person, every people group, but also to emphasize that the Jews needed to be saved just because they were, um, they were Jewish and God's chosen people, they still needed to enter into this salvation through faith. There's no free handout without laying down your life, repenting and believing. And so he's emphasizing this here. You Jews, and he's going he's gonna to reiterate this throughout Romans, you Jews need to be saved. And this is important to us because in our culture, in Louisiana and in Mandeville and this area, many have grown up in church. Many know what's in this book, on an intellectual level at least. And so we think that just because they go to church, sit in these chairs, name the name of Christ on Sundays, that this message is not for them, but this message is for everyone. And many of those people need to be saved too. The people that are right next to you today, the people that are at your work that look like Christians in some ways, but have never truly been converted. And so we must remember that, that this message is not just for the ugly, hideous, like depraved people. It's for our neighbors right around us that look great on the outside. We must remember that. The fourth thing that Paul loves about this gospel is the accessibility of it. So this gospel is to everyone who believes. Paul loves how we get to access this gospel. It's through this word, believe, Pestuo in the Greek, which is just to have faith. It's a synonym with faith. It's a synonym to commit, to trust. And I love this definition, and you can write it down. It's to entrust one's spiritual well-being to Christ. Faith is entrusting your spiritual well-being to Christ. Every single one of us will get to the end of our lives, and we will stand before God. We'll be asked to give an account of our lives. Why did we do what we, we did? Why did we think the thoughts we thought? Why did we marry who we married? Every single thing will, will be before you. And this is when your spiritual well-being will be on the line. Where will you spend eternity after this meeting with God? Will you point to yourself or will you point to Christ? Who are you looking to for your spiritual well-being? Turn to Matthew chapter 7, which I think if you're reading the McShane reading. No, y'all didn't read Matthew first. Y'all read Acts and Ezra. Matthew 7, verse 21. You guys know this verse. It's a scary verse. Because it starts by saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, we're, we're told that if we just you know, believe in Christ as Lord, then we'll be saved. But here it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it tells us how we'll know if we're truly a believer, if we do his will. But look at what the unbeliever says. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we? Look at what they point to first, themselves and their works, and what they did, and look at what they did, great things, right? They prophesied in his name, they cast out demons in his name, they did many mighty works in his name. 
much greater things than any of us have done, but they point to themselves. That's what they're trusting in for their spiritual well-being. We must point only to Christ on that day. Now, being a steward of the gospel, an ambassador for the message of reconciliation, it's amazing. We, we become eager to preach because this salvation that is so amazing through the power of God that brings us into it is attained to us through this amazing concept of faith. It's just simple, childlike faith. And this is designed by God. Faith is the instrument or the means or the vehicle, whatever you want to call it, by which one is united to Christ. The very weird illustration that came to my mind was uh, Peter Pan when he's running around the room in Wendy's room at night and his shadow's bouncing all over the walls. Hopefully you guys have seen this. It's not going to make any sense. And then Wendy's like, what's he doing? And he's on the ground and he's trying to put his shadow back on his foot with what? Soap, yeah, okay, someone's seen it. So he's trying to attach his shadow to himself with soap, and Wendy says, no, 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 that's not how that works, and she, you know, sews it on with needle and thread. And so what's happening here is it's, it's demonstrating how one is united to Christ. How is a shadow, uh, you know, re, reintroduced to the human that it belongs to? And it's not through works, the soap, it's through faith, the needle and thread. We become united to Christ through this salvation. And the instrument that God uses is our faith that we would believe. Now, Paul will continue to explain this concept of faith through the book of Romans. And it's incredible to watch his logic progress. First, he has to deal with a lot of sin and unrighteousness and show us the need for this faith because of the depravity of man, which really highlights the power of God. In one sense, these four words is kind of like a table of contents for what he's about to deal with. Right from verse 18 in chapter one, all the way through half of chapter three, he deals with our sin and the power of God needed to justify such a sinful person. Then he, he deals with salvation in chapter five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and 11. He deals with the everyone in chapter 10 and 11, the universality of the gospel. And he deals with the issue of faith starting in chapter three. If you look at chapter three, just flip a page and look at verse 22. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, right? He's reemphasizing this point. It's not through the law. He said in verse 21, apart from the law, it's through faith in Jesus Christ for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to, receive, to be received by faith. So all of this accomplished through faith. Your justification, which is ultimately what is needed in your salvation, to be justified by God, to be, to be deemed righteous, is accomplished through your faith. Look down at verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The, the law is not needed to make someone righteous, to save them. 
And then he, in chapter four, illustrates this wonderful truth, this beautiful doctrine of faith, justification by faith, by showing that this has always been the way of salvation. He, this is not a new concept. He, he looks at the father Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, verse one, verse two, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what, is a, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he really expounds on what this belief entailed. So your faith may or may not be good enough to save you. We got to look at some of the qualities of your faith. Uh, verse nine, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. So what he's showing there is that it wasn't that he got circumcised and saved him. That would be a work. His circumcision came after. Uh, it was the faith. He was, he was justified then at that moment. So let's look at the characteristics of Abraham's faith quickly. And then we will see if our faith matches up to this. Verse 16, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Our faith should look like Abraham's faith. So then he displays what that faith is. Verse 18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So God tells him a promise. Abraham believes it against hope even though it doesn't look like Abraham will become a father of many nations, he believes it. And so is your faith, is it hopeful against all hope? Even though you can't see heaven or imagine heaven, or when you read these words, if it's like almost too good to be true and you can't, it looks like, it sounds like a fairy tale, do you still believe and hope against hope? Verse 19 the second characteristic is it says he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And so faith is not escapism. It's not just turning your eyes to all the facts of the world. It's, it's, it's hitting them head on, confronting them and maintaining a biblical worldview, no matter what the world does, no matter what or who they put in power, no matter what comes at us, we have faith. We have the fact that Abraham was old and that Sarah had never had a child before at the age of 90, and yet he's, he still believes, and that was a characteristic of his faith. It wasn't escapism. And number three, it tells us in verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. Maybe his faith wasn't so amazing right at the beginning, but it grew and he became fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So his faith was fully convinced. It was unwavering. There was a conviction about this belief that God had told him that, that caused him to do certain things. It caused him to live a certain way. And so th are these the qualities of your saving faith? Is this the faith that you're sharing with others to, to bring them into the kingdom? Are you making sure that they have hope? And is it a strong faith despite what's out there, despite what's staring them in the faith? Is it a fully convinced faith or is it heading in that direction? 
And so that's our, that's our great joy to be able to share this wonderful message that is attained through this method of faith. You tell people the facts and then you call them to have faith. That's evangelism. Tell them the facts, tell them to believe the facts. But their faith must be hopeful, it must be strong, and it must ultimately be convinced. And just as a warning, don't be someone's assurance just because they prayed a prayer or, 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 or confessed and believed, as the Bible tells us in Romans 10, but we take that so literally, what is confession actually? What is true belief? Well, we have to, it takes time to really see those things out. Don't be someone's assurance. Expose them to the word and then just see if they believe it. And this takes place over time through discipleship, which we'll talk more about that next week. And really the hardest part of evangelism is, is really this. It's that you can tell people the facts, but you can't make them believe. And so we're so, we're so scared of that. We want to just, maybe that is belief. Maybe what I'm seeing is belief. Just trust God to do his work and be in prayer for them and then enter into a discipleship relationship with them, which we'll talk about both of those things in detail next week. So kind of closing this thing up, I just want to Look at verse 17 a little more quickly. I don't have any A's there, so I just left it as a conclusion. But look first at back at chapter one, and let's just recap Paul's thinking, right? Paul says in verse one, he was set apart for the gospel of God. That's his reason for living. That's his reason for being, for writing this letter, for doing all the missionary work that he's doing. It's for the gospel of God. In verse nine, he calls it the gospel of his son, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which if you love the gospel, it's synonymous with loving Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is most glorious and manifested in the gospel. In verse 11, he shows his reason for writing this. He longs to see them, that he may impart some spiritual strength to them, but that they also would impart spiritual strength to him. When you're around other believers that have been changed with this powerful message, it is strengthening. It's a wonderful thing to be in the fellowship of other believers. And Paul knew that to be true from experience. And so he, he writes that to them. But really the core of this letter, what Paul is driving at is verse 17. And 17 is probably the thesis statement of the whole letter. It says it in the gospel, it, that's what it refers to, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther, when he read these words and when he studied the Bible, he hated the gospel at first because he understood this to be true in, in one sense that in the gospel or in, in the, the, the writings of scripture, the, the gospel is revealed. In other words, we, we see Jesus more clearly. We think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preaches in, in um, Matthew chapter five and he has what theologians call the antitheses, which are the six examples of how the Jewish people misinterpreted God's law. And when I teach that section, I always call called Jesus the greater interpreter, because that's really what he's doing. His, he's reinterpreting their misinterpretations. And he says things like, you thought that murder was just killing someone, but actually murder is being angry at your brother. You think that you know, adultery is wrong, but actually lust is just as bad. You think you just got to love you know, the people that are easy to love, but you got to love your enemies. 
And when Martin Luther sits in view of that, he says, he hates it because he can never attain that righteousness. And that's what was always confusing to him. And really, it, it brought him much torture. But it was when he finally understood this verse that the righteousness of God is revealed and it's given to you through Christ. That's how you attain righteousness, not through your works, not through living up to all of these things. The word revealed, it means to take off, to disclose, to uncover. And that's why we say how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They're revealing this good news. Well, this is the message that we get to proclaim, that God has revealed a righteousness in Christ. He's shown it to us. And that righteousness now belongs to us. And that's the key to understand. And it belongs to us through faith. We reach out and grab it through our faith. And that unites us to him. And now we can spend eternity with him. And that gives us hope. It restores our hope. It gets rid of our guilt. It gives us innocence. And that wonderful righteousness is given to us through the gift of faith. Look at 20, remember uh, chapter three, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And why it's revealed to us, it's for the faith that we need to live it out. So this verse has always confused me. And so I want to try to make it as clear as possible. But if you have any questions about it, just come up after uh, and I'll make it more clear. It says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What does it mean from faith for faith? Well, your faith, the saving faith that you had at conversion restored you to God through the righteousness of Christ. For what purpose? So that you can live out the righteousness of Christ. So that you can become the fulfillment of that Sermon on the Mount that seems so impossible. How could you ever do that? It's through the righteousness that Christ gives you. But it's through faith that you believing in this righteousness. So it's from faith, for faith, from faith, your salvation, for faith, your sanctification, how you progressively work through this world, for faith. And you use faith to do that. And he ends by saying, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what does this mean? Well, it could mean two things, and it may mean both of these things, that at least you see them both in it. One, the righteous shall live. How will the righteous enter eternal life? In other words, well, by faith. We already know that, so maybe he's reemphasizing that. But also, how does the righteous live? What is the characteristic of his life? It's faith, always believing, hope against hope that God is working on you and he's working in you to make you into this image of Christ so that you can fulfill his commandments it's through faith. What a wonderful message. This is why Paul gloried in it. He loved it. He orients his, his whole life around sharing this gospel. So as I close here, I don't want you walking out of here just making evangelism a thing to do, putting it on you know, your list of New Year's resolutions. I think that's an insult to the gospel. If you are a Christian, you are an evangelist. In the same way that we're all counselors, we're all preachers, we're all ambassadors, we're all evangelists. If you have a kid, you're a parent, right? You're a parent. 
You may not be a good one, you may not be a present one, but you are one by definition. And, and so you may not be a professional evangelist, counselor, preacher, ambassador, but you are one. Thomas Manton says that God seldom lights a candle, but he has a lost coin to seek. If you've been saved, for what purpose? For what purpose is it? Who in your life needs this message? If you've been neglecting this role as an evangelist, then please pray and confess. Matthew 6 tells us to ask, seek, or Matthew 7 tells us to ask, seek, and knock. Ask, Lord, who do I need to proclaim this message to? Seek, get coffee with them, get time with them, and knock, speak, share this message. And to you, if you have been rejecting Christ, if you're still hardened to this message of the gospel, repent and believe today. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. It's not always promised that you can believe tomorrow. Matthew 13 shows the picture of a seed that gets, uh, that gets uh, broadcasted on the ground and the bird comes and takes it up. This gospel may, may um, leave your mind and the opportunity for you to repent and believe may be gone. If you want freedom from your guilt, if you want to be released from the chain of performance and from the um, false attempted self-righteousness, then call out to God. Ask him to grant you this gift of faith today. Let's pray.